Welcome to Leading Simple with Rusty George. Our goal is to make following Jesus and leading others a bit more simple. Here's your host, Rusty George. Hey, welcome to episode 184 of Leading Simple. My name is Rusty George, and I'm on a quest to make all of the noise of life a little bit more simple. And one of the questions that a lot of us have is, how do I start something and do something that gives my life tremendous significance? That was a conversation that Scott Harrison had years ago, and he decided to start creating a nonprofit that gave people fresh water. And it's called Charity Water, and it's just incredible. And I'm going to let him tell you all about it. But for anybody thinking, boy, I'd love to start a nonprofit, I'd love to do something to benefit other people, he's going to make it simple for you. This is going to be really, really helpful. So make sure that you, you stick around. And I really do believe that after this conversation, in a matter of months, you'll be able to use some of these principles and to make a maximum impact in your world in a very simple fashion. Hey, we're continuing our work with this great organization called Compassion International. Here you are midway through January. You have got a handle on your Christmas spending. You've got a plan for how to pay down your credit card debt. Hey, would you decide to sponsor a child? Of all the blessings we've been given, would you decide to bless somebody else? and take 40 bucks a month and change a child's life. It will literally, literally change their life and their family's life. I've been to these places, I've seen these kids, my family and I sponsor multiple kids, and it will be a great, great opportunity for you. So go to CompassionInternational.com slash Rusty, and there you can sign up to sponsor a child. Well, here's my conversation with nonprofit founder, Scott Harrison, the founder of Charity Waters. Scott, it is great to have you on the podcast. Uh, for our listeners who don't know who you are, give us who you are in 90 seconds. Go. Sure. Uh, so I, uh, I lead an organization called Charity Water uh, that I founded 15 years ago. We are trying to bring clean and safe drinking water to every human being alive on the planet. Uh, unfortunately, there are still 771 million people living uh, without the, the, the most basic need in life. Uh, which is about 10% of the world. And we've helped uh, about 15 million people get clean water so far over the last 15 years. So um, we, uh, we have this amazing community of, uh, you know, over a million generous donors from 150 countries that have kind of uh, embraced this idea of clean water for all. And I've got a, a, a wife uh, of 11 years. Actually, we just had celebrated our 12th anniversary. I've got a five-year-old named Emma, uh, who was born on my birthday. Mm. And I've got a seven-year-old named Jackson. And uh, we, we lived in Manhattan for 26 years. And as we were just catching up, moved to a farm during COVID. And now we're in, in Nashville, Tennessee. Oh, my goodness. Well, that's a wild ride. I, I'm fascinated by... Uh, this whole idea of starting a nonprofit. I know many of our listeners, some are in ministry, some have planted churches, some have started nonprofits, some, you know, want to do that eventually. They have an idea of, boy, I wish I could provide help here or do this. I'm sure COVID was tough on all nonprofits and all, you know, organizations trying to raise funds. I really want to drill down on the whole nonprofit thing a little bit. How did, yeah. how did you decide that's what I want to do? Um, and, and <laughs> you know, I mean, there's so many different things you could be doing and living in New York. I mean, certainly the, the world is your oyster. So why, why this one? Well, I was my first career. So I was raised in a very conservative Christian family. 
And uh, at 18, I lived out the classic cliche rebellion story. You know, I, I gave church and family the finger. I said, I'm going to go make it on my own. I'm going to move to New York City. And uh, I thought, well, if I'm going to rebel, I should rebel in style. So I became a nightclub promoter. So I was going to be the king of New York City nightlife. And over the next 10 years, I, I pursued that. I worked at 40 different nightclubs, mm. you know, at the, at the highest end, the models, the celebrities, the bankers, you know, watching guys pop and spray thousand dollar bottles of champagne, you know, over, over the DJ booth and, you know, picked up all the vices that you might imagine would come with that territory. So the smoking, the drinking, the drugs, the, mm -hmm. you know, chasing, chasing models and fashion week around the world. And at, at 28, um, I, and thankfully, uh, had that moment where, you know, the, the, the proverbial pigsty moment mm. where I realized I was morally bankrupt, spiritually bankrupt, uh, emotionally bankrupt. And if I continued down this path, I would die young and my tombstone might actually read, here lies a man who's gotten a million people wasted. Mm. Like full stop. That's all that that my life would have have amounted to. And, you know, I, I came back to faith in a, in a pretty radical way, you know, as a 28 year old um, where I got to opt back into it. Uh, it wasn't the faith of my parents. It wasn't what was being, you know, kind of forced down my throat maybe as a kid. And I sold everything I owned and said, I'm going to tithe one of the 10 years that I've selfishly wasted. And I'm going to go see if I can be useful. Um, if any of my gifts could be of use to, to others. And there was just this clear idea, Rusty, of wanting, you know, I realized a, a course correction was not needed. This was not a pivot situation. <laughs> this is like, find every single thing I'm doing and do the exact opposite, <laughs> like the 180 of everything. And the, the idea there was, could I go and serve um, on a humanitarian mission in a, in a country, you know, in, the, in one of the poorest countries of the world? And uh, that sounds crazy, maybe for a nightclub promoter of 10 years, but I applied to the, the famous orgs I'd heard of, the World Visions and Samaritan's Purse and Save the Children's and Doctors Without Borders. Everybody turned me down. You know, nobody wanted a, a New York City nightclub promoter on their serious humanitarian mission. And then this one group called Mercy Ships finally said, uh, Scott, if you're willing to pay us $500 a month, and you're willing to go live in post-war Liberia, you can join our mission. And you know that took me to Africa for the first time. Uh, it's where I experienced the water crisis. It's where I saw people, human beings, drinking dirty water for the first time. And it, it turned into a two-year um, experience. And sorry, this is a long way to finally answer your question. That's that great. The chief medical officer at the end of that period he had been working as a doctor in Africa for 25 years. And he said, if you really wanted to make an impact on the world, if you really cared about health or human flourishing, just go get people clean water. Just go bring the world clean water. And he kind of charged me with that. And, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, there's just these moments where somebody says something. You're like, all right, I guess I'll try. You know, it seems so simple. Uh, at the time, there were a billion people globally without clean water, one in six humans alive. And 
I said, okay, I'm going to come back. And I don't know anything about a nonprofit organization. I don't know anything about philanthropy, but I'm going to try to start and lead a global movement that will bring every single person in the world clean water. Mm. So if you'd met me 15 years ago, I would have actually told you, I'm going to get every single person on earth clean water or die trying. Mm. You know, it wasn't, I'm going to help a few people or I'm going to go build 10 wells or a hundred. It's like, no, I'm going to help everybody on the planet. Uh, and, and, and there was a clarity of that, that, you know, 15 years later, I'm saying the same thing. And, you know, we've just helped 15 million more people, but still, you know, a fraction, one fiftieth of the work that's, that, that needs to be done. Walk us through what that looks like. Uh, I, I hear these stats and I think, first of all, how do you get those kind of stats? Second of all, I mean, how does this work? I mean, yeah, we, we go over there and drop off a lot of Dasani water bottles, but but then what? Yeah, it's not that. It's not that. <laughs> so Dasani, by the way, river water. It is purified river water, not spring water. Okay, but but just walk me through how how do you do that? I mean, obviously there's fundraising, but yeah, you know how how do you get clean water into people's hands that's sustainable to where they can continuously draw from that well? Yeah. Oh, I like that analogy there. Um, <laughs> A little double entendre. That's yours. Uh, the, <laughs> I'm going to write that down. So the, the problem right now, uh, 771 million people globally don't have clean water. Now, we know where these people live. Okay, so, so let's just say the data set is, is not contested. 80% of those people live in rural areas. 20% live in cities and towns. Okay. There's not a single person alive who we wouldn't know how to help, okay? So unlike maybe pancreatic cancer, which we just don't really know how to cure quickly, or you, know, you name a disease where you've got technicians in labs looking for the, you know, the vaccine or looking for the, you know, the cure, water's not like that. So if you're solution agnostic, meaning if you're willing to employ uh, a whole variety of different water solutions or tools, you can help every single person in the world get clean water. So I, I just learned that early on. I saw people build wells. I saw people build rainwater harvesting systems. I saw people build filters. I saw people uh, build fog nets and you know catch condensation. Wow. I saw gravity fed systems. I saw spring protections. I saw many of these different technologies uh, early on and realized like you've got, you know, maybe 15 tools and in any village, you're saying, what is the appropriate technology? What is the right tool to use? You know, I, I mentioned, uh, you know, our farm. So we have a farm that's two hours outside of New York City, and we have two wells. The right tool for that farm was drilling two wells about 250 feet deep, one in the backyard and one in the basement. And that's where all the water comes from. Um, in the city, you know, I had piped water. It was a very different system. So it's a solvable problem, and that's how we do it. We now uh, work across 21 different countries. We employ about 1,500 locals in these countries. That's a big part of the model for, for it to be culturally appropriate, for it to be sustainable. We just believe it has to be led by the hydrogeologists, by the, the, the local technicians. And, you know, again, we've got 15 or 16 different technologies now across that 20-country portfolio. The cheapest cost about $65. The most expensive are $2 million. Mm. 
you know, for solar arrays and networks of pipes and, you know, the pipes alone on some of these systems are a million bucks, but then they're connecting different villages to, to maybe just simplify it. It costs about $40 on average to get a person clean water. So for every $40 million, 1 million people go from dirty water to clean water. Okay. So my first thought then is there are some places that you don't work with a government that's very friendly towards these systems or they want to keep it all for themselves or perhaps the whole system gets hijacked. Uh, How do you protect the ongoing use of clean water for people? Yeah. So there's a, there's kind of a decision matrix on where we work. So there would be about 65 countries that would meet the criteria of, you know, where these people live uh, without access to clean water. We, our first pass is rural, not urban. So we just take the 20% straight out. Hmm. Most of the government funding, most of the kind of world bank funding would hit the cities and the towns. Mm-hmm. Voter, voters live there, uh, concentration of population. It's just easier to do a big infrastructure system. So our first pass is we're only working rural. The next pass is to eliminate conflict zones. Uh, we just don't have that proficiency to dodge bullets and drill wells. Yeah. So we're not working in Yemen. We're not working in South Sudan. Uh, the next pass would be hostile governments, governments that do not want any foreign intervention or assistance. So that would take out a Myanmar, for example, mm-hmm. right? The, the military junta there is very unfriendly to outsiders. Okay, so you have kind of these passes. Gotcha. Then we go to the lowest income countries, and we have picked 29 countries uh, that, we're, that we're actively working in. Um, there are about 45 that would meet the criteria. So we add a couple more every year. But to give you an example, we would work in Malawi with, uh, you know, let's say a, a per capita of, you know, $500 a person, let's say, over a um, Brazil or a Peru, you know, a middle income country that would still have some water needs, but is well poised or is better poised to address them based on GDP, based on kind of government income. So Hmm. I I will say, Rusty, because I I get that question a lot, you know, kind of what about warlords or what about corruption? Um, It is embarrassing for a government to not provide its people clean water. Mm -hmm. So I think we've expected over 15 years more difficulty than we've than we've actually experienced. Right. When we come into a Malawi, an Ethiopia, a Ghana, uh, and you know a state in India, um, we are we are helping you know with a basic need. It's not political, so there's no agenda that comes along with that. Right? We're not building a school where a government would be wary of a, of an ideology, let's say a Western ideology or right. some sort of agenda. It's just water, yep. and we're employing the locals who are getting the credit. So it's not even that like we're bringing in these expats with hard hats. We are creating local jobs, hundreds of local jobs as we do this. So what we've actually found is government matches. You know, for instance, the government of Rwanda has matched 90 cents of every dollar we've put in the country. We've put in about $15 million and we've gotten about 13 million out of the Rwandan government alongside that. Mm. Uh, And we've been able to do, you know, what, $28 million worth of work. Um, so I, I think, um, that's amazing. Th- maybe that's been surprising to us. And, and because it's such a basic need, I remember being at a conference once many years ago and the Jordanian water minister was talking and he said, ah, you're going to hear for years 
the future wars in the world will be fought over water, right? Not oil. And he said, I'm going to tell you that's not true. And over, he, he basically did a 20 minute history lesson, which was just interesting, um, of how people always work it out, how people have been at odds. They've about, you know, they've threatened to go to war over water, but they have managed to typically work out hmm. how the resource is, is shared. So, you know, we have not seen warlords taking over wells. You know, a bigger challenge is a village that overshares their water, huh. which can lead to a pump breakdown, you know, to the overuse of the pump and a non-functionality because they're sharing their water with their neighbors to the west and the neighbors to the north and the neighbors to the east, wanting everybody to have access. And a, a, let's say a, a water system that should help 300 people might actually be serving 2,000 people, which is way too much. Yeah. This is amazing. I mean, when you think of what Jesus... No, there's a lot of complexity well, in all this. I mean, <laughs> when you, I mean I'm, I'm no hydrologist or whatever you call that. I didn't even know that existed. Uh, I'm still fascinated that Matt Damon made water up on Mars, but that's a whole other story. Um, but when you think about... <laughs> that, was, that was a surprisingly good movie, right? It was great. Yeah, it was really yeah, great. Great movie. I mean, when you think about Jesus saying, when you give a cup of cold water, I mean, you are doing that in my name and to me. I mean, that's... That's what you're doing. This is incredible. Um, and I have, a, I have a lot of other questions about nonprofits and fundraising, but just before we even get to that, yeah, if, I love talking about if people want to participate in this, they're just listening to this going, boy, I would support that. Where do they go? Yeah. Yeah. So we have this amazing community that we started a few years ago called The Spring. And, uh, you know, this is, think of this as Spotify or Netflix or Amazon Prime, but you get no movies. You get no TV, uh, you get no free shipping, and it's a membership community where 100% of whatever people give every month goes directly to build these water projects, and then we report back on that. Um, so, you know, maybe a little similar to the sponsor a child model that, that people may be familiar with of Compassion or World Vision, except this is really going to fund water projects across 20 countries, and then we storytell around that and we track the impact. Okay. So that's called The Spring. Um, it has been driving all of Charity Water's growth. Um, we now have spring members in 147 different countries. Mm. And the average person gives 30 bucks a month. Mm. So almost enough for one person to get clean water. Yeah. And, you know, you can go to thespring.com to check that out. It's a, it's a great way to help. It takes less than 30 seconds to join. And um, that, that community of kind of, you know, small givers, I guess, is what we're so passionate about. Yeah. And, you know, just to give you an example, Rusty, I mean, Disney Plus came out of nowhere and they went from zero to 100 million paying subscribers in about a year. Mm -hmm. Right. The largest charitable giving membership program in the world is about three million people. Mm. So 100 million people showing up for The Mandalorian. Yeah. Right. And three million people showing up for you know, to, to, to help people in need. Um, and there's just, there's a lot of people that, that can, that can do that. So that's kind of, you know, as we think of fundraising, as we think of taking a bigger chunk, yeah. uh, out of, of this, it's really not millionaires or billionaires. Yep. It's getting the word out to everyday people who could say, man, I can do 20 bucks a month and not even notice it. Right. But you get enough of those people to kind of loyally show up, you know? Yeah. You get a million of those people to do $20 a month. That's a quarter of a billion dollars a year 
for water projects. That's incredible. So that's that's a big focus for for us right now. Okay, so let's talk about nonprofits. Sure. People sitting out there listening to this and are thinking, I, I'd like to do that. That sounds great. Make a difference with my life. Talk okay. about it. <laughs> I, I was going to say, tell me what we don't know. Give me three reasons why they should, three reasons why they shouldn't. Yeah. What was the, you know, kind of the thing you didn't see coming when it came to that? Well, I didn't. The problem that I wanted to solve, nobody else was solving it in the way that I thought it should be. Maybe, and I think this is how most entrepreneurs or social entrepreneurs, um, you know, you look at a problem and you say, "I want to solve this," but I don't see anyone else out there doing it well. Right? Elon Musk had a vision for an electric car that you know GM was not going to make a beautiful, you know, a beautiful sports car at first, right? Or you know, or a Model Three. So. Um, you know, you, you pick the entrepreneur and there's typically a unique way of solving that problem. The biggest water charity in America when I started was about a $15 million a year org. And that's not a lot of money. And, you know, in in the face of a billion person global problem. And it, it wasn't an org that I felt like if I joined them, I could really make the impact. I mean, my vision was to raise, uh, honestly, you know, tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars hmm. towards this and to do it in a really unique way. And I had the advantage of being completely naive, 30, you know, uh, and, and not knowing any better. And I was just talking to everyday people. And I realized one of the biggest problems we would face was a cynicism and a skepticism when it came to charity. You know, people don't admit this publicly, but 42% of Americans polled by USA Today said they didn't trust charities. Mm-hmm. 70% of Americans more recently polled said they believed charities waste their money. Mm. So, you know, I thought, man, this is the opportunity. What would get these disenfranchised disenchanted, skeptical people back to the table of generosity, back to the table of giving. What would get them excited about giving? And the only big idea I had at the time was what if I could promise them two things? One, that 100% of whatever they gave, whether it was a dollar or a million dollars, would go directly to build water projects that would help people get clean water, so no overhead, And then two, that I would use technology to prove those projects, that I would send them satellite images of the completed project. I would send them photos, GPS coordinates, you know, in the early days, even video of clean water flowing. And then in a separately audited bank account, I would take it upon myself to raise all of the overhead, the unsexy staff salaries, the Epson toner, uh, the, the, you know, office rent, the flights, the insurance from a very small group of visionary entrepreneurs and business leaders, you know, who know that to build any organization of value, you need to recruit and retain the very best talent. So that was the big idea that nobody else was doing. Church and state, overhead in one account, funded by a small group of people. Hmm. The mass movement gets this pure play where they know where every penny goes. And a lot of people don't know this, but for 15 years, we've even been paying back the public's credit card fees 
so, so that we, so that there's complete integrity in the hundred percent. Wow. And this was at, at a, at a small scale, this was like a cute idea. Now it costs me like almost a million dollars a year that I have to raise for overhead to, you know, to pay back your 3% Amex transaction or your 2% Visa MasterCard transaction. But you know, that was so important to us that we could go out to people with that model. And so that's why I did it myself. And I think, you know, if, if you are listening or you know, watching and, and you are passionate about something, you know, solving a problem, maybe it's trafficking, maybe it's hunger or shelter or, you know, a, a local issue, maybe it's a justice issue, I would first say, go find out who's doing it well, um, whom you might join hmm. and try to join them. Uh, or, or try to add value or raise money for them or at least get exposed to your, you know, have a depth of information about the issue that goes beyond just, you know, watching a video on their website. It's, it's beyond surface level. Um, and if no one is doing it or you really do have a unique idea, then start your own thing but count the cost because it was brutal, 100-hour weeks, um, you know, near-death experiences for the organization almost insolvency, um, you know, so many inc- like myriad challenges over the last 15 years. And, you know, it's, it's like we've been pushing this boulder up a hill and the more successful you are, the bigger the boulder is, you know, I mean, Rusty, I have to raise a hundred million dollars this year. You know, it's $2 million a week. Um, it was a lot easier in the beginning. You know, and, and you get to do a lot with that, right? We're going to help 2 million new people get access to clean water this year. But it's, it, the, the toll uh, is, is, is real. And, uh, you know, I was younger. I was, I was lucky enough to start this before I was married, before I had kids. And, you know, get Charity Water to a, a point where it didn't, it, didn't involve, it didn't need heroics for me when I started building a family. Uh, but... You know, it's, it's, uh, raising money is extraordinarily difficult. Getting people to part with their money is really, really hard. Getting people to part with their money for an issue that doesn't affect them directly is even harder. And a lot of people don't know this, but of all of the American money that is given away every year, 4% goes overseas. 96% stays in our faith communities our hospitals, our alma maters and universities, our soup kitchens, and 4% goes to be a good neighbor and to help people in need uh, around the world. So it's, if, if, you're, if you've got a global issue, you know, be prepared. It's hard. Hey, let me pop in here for just a second and remind you, make sure you sponsor a child. Go there right now, compassion.com slash rusty. Sponsor a child today for the price of about two lattes. You can change a child's life. Love for you to be a part of that. And go to Compassion.com, Compassion International, and sign up. Compassion.com slash Rusty and sponsor a child. Okay, back to our conversation. All right, let me ask about the weight that you carry. Um, a, A lot of us in jobs that deal with nonprofits, people's health, people's souls, it's a weight that you carry to bed at night that's a little different than maybe a different job. How do you, what are the mental gymnastics you go through to be able to sleep at night when you feel like I haven't raised enough money? I haven't helped enough people. There's still people out there without clean water. 
you know, walk me through a little bit of how you're able to compartmentalize this a little bit so you can sleep and have a family and, and uh, have a weekend without, uh, you know, I got two choices. I can go out and raise a, another million dollars to help people, or I can sit on the couch and watch The Voice. So, you know, h- how do you kind of wrestle through that? You know, it's a lot easier now. Um, at, I'm kind of in, you know, moving into the second half of life. I've got kids, you know, I'm thinking a lot more about mentorship and, mm. you know, what other organizations might I, you know, help kind of create or what, what other founders might I kind of empower to go and, you know, build the next charity water in their space. So there's definitely been a, a shift in thinking. I, I think you just have to hold these things in tension. So by the end of the year, we'll have helped 15 million people get water. 771 million people need it. It's, it's right on the nose at 2%, mm. right? So about 150th of the work that needs to be done. And I remember somebody came up to me once. And they're like, well, you just need to do 50 times more. You know, and, like, and in some ways that seems somehow achievable. You know, I mean, it, it doesn't, but... You know, it's, 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 it's a a dent. So 2% is a tiny dent, but then, you know, when I'm trying to encourage myself, so I'm, I'm a New Yorker for, you know, 26 years, my local, uh, kind of artist venue is Madison square garden. It holds about 18,000 people. And I have been to the garden for sporting events, for Billy Joel's 70th, like for, you know, you, you name it. It's, it's about eight, it's more than 800 Madison square gardens full of people. So then I'm like, man, Charity Water has sold out the garden for more than two consecutive years. Mm. We've played 800 back-to-back 18,000-person shows just to contain 15 million people. Mm. It's more people than live in New York City and all the boroughs, right? You start adding up states. So you kind of have these two things in tension, right? Let's encourage ourselves. It's an impact. I think we're now helping this year – I think we're helping one person like every 19 seconds get clean water. So, you know, I record this with you and, you know, an hour later, right? A lot of people have clean water because of the the movement and the generosity of all these people. So you kind of go back and forth between the vision is way out there. There's a massive delta between the vision and what we've achieved. Um, And then you try to encourage yourself by, well, we've actually done a lot. Hmm. And, And it matters for those 15 million people that we exist, that we keep showing up for that. That's such a great leadership principle. I don't know if that really oh, answers your question. I will say, absolutely. you know, I wrote, I wrote, a, I wrote a book um, uh, two years ago uh, called Thirst. And in, in one of the chapters, you know, I had this crisis of leadership at year 10 because we'd had, actually it was in year nine, we'd had eight years of consecutive growth and we just grew the heck out of this thing. Like 2 million, 6 million, 9 million, 15, 23, 28, 35, 45. And then we had a down year. Mm. And we went from helping a million people get water to 820,000 people. Mm. And I actually felt, Rusty, like I let 180,000 people down because I couldn't lead the org. I couldn't even match the success of the previous year from a fundraising perspective. And I crashed and I couldn't sleep. And, you know, I tried to start a CEO search. Like now it's trying to bring on a real leader who can actually, you know, mm. not screw this thing up and, you know, only raise like $36 million. And, and um, I wound up taking a month off and going out and, and spending some time actually in Redding, California. Um, and 
what I realized was was my identity was so unhealthily enmeshed with the numbers and the results and the people served. Yeah. And you know, my dad's like, dude, nothing goes up and to the right forever. You know, like you have good years, you have bad years. The important thing is like, did you compromise any of your values? I'm like, absolutely not. Did your team work hard? Did you do your best? I'm like, absolutely. And and outside of that one top line donation revenue metric, it was actually the best year. The ninth year was better than the eighth or the seventh or the sixth from just an execution and infrastructure building perspective. So, you know, I had this um, kind of big epiphany that, you know, who I am, like, I'm a son of God, I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a friend, and then I also lead this organization. And it was kind of a reprioritizing of that. And I think, you know, now I'm much more, well, COVID was a down cycle for us. And I think I just navigated it, um, maybe from a mental health uh, perspective, in a, in a healthier way, mm-hmm. having been through that. That's so good. I mean, there... There's so many leadership nuggets in that, but one of which is you do have to celebrate the wins because what's rewarded gets repeated and your team needs to know we sold out the garden for over two years. I mean, that's incredible. So let's celebrate that. And then we get back to work. But then there's a whole identity piece too, which is huge, which most leaders never learn that lesson until they crash and burn as to what their identity is. And and that's that's huge wisdom there. So so thank you for that. And and can we just say, since you're a New Yorker and you've seen Billy Joel, there's just no concert like Billy Joel. Oh, Rusty, I was there for his 70th, and as a leader, it gave me. So you know, I grew up with Billy Joel. I, I play piano. My kids play piano, and I, like I probably hadn't listened to him for a decade. Yeah. And I had a donor invited me. It was his 70th. And he gets up there and he's just got this like giant grin and he says, it's my 70th birthday. What else am I going to do? Like, what else am I going to do? And watching someone, you know, live out their calling, their, their vocation with joy. He didn't sound as good as he used to, but there was just, there was this kind of contagious watching someone repeat their craft yep. at 70 yep. and still enjoy like he had a blast yeah right this is the same thing with speakers often you know i go to a lot of conferences i get to speak at a lot of conferences and you know a a speaker's energy or enthusiasm is contagious yep. if they have fun the audience has fun right if they don't want to be there the audience doesn't want to be there no it's, and you know you, you've got to show up on sunday and kind of bring that passion and intensity and enthusiasm, which can infect uh, everybody listening. Yeah. And he he had it. So it was, it was a great, great moment. It was way better than I expected. I was yeah. like, oh, I got to go see Billy Joel in his 70th. And, you know, yeah. he's still around. But, yeah. boy, it was awesome. I saw him. Uh, he had just turned 65, and he was out at the Hollywood Bowl. And I thought, like you, I mean, I love Billy Joel, listened to him all my life. Never seen him, but I thought, oh, it'll be fun to see him. I'm sure he's not as good as back in the heyday. He crushed it. Played forever. The band was so tight. He had so much fun up there. I, I just I find myself thinking about that concert a lot as one of the yep. greatest concerts I've ever seen. It was incredible. And and maybe just, you know, one more thought on on kind of, you know, staying the course. You know, we're 15 years in now. I saw uh, a stock price the other day, 27-year stock price of Amazon. And it is the craziest visual. You have to put this in like Yahoo Finance. 20 years is a very, very, very low straight line. 
And then in year 20, after two decades, it basically, you know, hikes up to the right. 7% of the value of Amazon was created in the first 20 years. 93% in the last seven. Wow. So it was two decades of showing up, right, investing in the business, trying a bunch of stuff. I mean, remember they did like the Fire Phone. I mean, they did some really, they did a bunch of stuff that didn't work. And if you show up for 20 freaking years, you know, you put yourself in the position for, you know, explosive exponential growth because you get to take all of those learnings and, you know, you're still around, you know, you're still around selling things to everybody, like now selling everything to everybody. Yeah. Now they, I mean, they, they run everything. But that encourages me because I'm in year 15, yeah. you know, so maybe, so I really believe the best is yet to come. That's, that's good. That's really good wisdom. All right. So I, I want to drill down uh, in our time remaining and hear about how you deal with high capacity donors. Uh, there's a lot of church leaders listening to this. They have to sit and have a cup of coffee or a lunch or a dinner with somebody and ask them for a large gift. Uh, or they got to motivate a lot of people to make a significant gift, or maybe it's just the the consistency type gifts like you talked about with the uh, yeah. the spring group. So, you know, in your mind, you know, what's the elevator pitch, or what's the three do's and don'ts when it comes to talking to high capacity givers? Oh my gosh! Well, first of all, it's so bespoke, and the research is important. You really want to get in the head of the, the donor or the family, um, why would they do this? Mm. Why, how does this align with their personal values, uh, their past giving, the, the things that they have gotten involved in? Um, you know, I've now asked several people for 10 million plus dollars and, and they've said yes, but it is not you know, Rusty, I'm just going to come over to your house and ask you for $10 million. Right. You know, the, the amount of uh, research and thought and care um, to try to craft something that is, is going to honor that family, uh, is, is going to kind of be a part of their legacy. You know, often there's kids involved and, and they really care. You know, many of these families really care about their kids getting involved in something like Charity Water, going to the field or experiencing this. Um, and you have to ask. You really have to ask. You know, I would say in the early days, I was just out there telling the story and, and people would, you know, give us money. Um, I mean, we've had many, many seven-figure gifts, gifts that were just completely unsolicited. But I think I've, I've found, I probably left a few hundred million dollars on the table by not asking. Mm. You know, by letting someone, you know, by, or, or not asking someone maybe to, to stretch. But it, it really starts with a deep understanding, asking them what they care about. You know, what are their core values? Like, what is animating them? Um, and it's a it's a beautiful, beautiful thing being able to, you know, take people's money and and do amazing things with it, and then and then share that feedback loop. That's the other thing. I think you need to go back and say, here's what your gift has allowed our church to do, you know, to fund, or, you know, maybe it's a, uh, whatever the initiative is, right. You know, making sure it's just not going into that void. Right. 
That's huge. I think transparency is really helpful too. I mean, Charity Water is this hyper-transparent organization and we audit, KPMG audits the 100% model every year and all that stuff is published. So, you know, being able to tell them, you know, with specificity, here's how we're using their money. And, and donors are open to myriad value propositions. Most people just want to help. They want to be useful, but they want to know where their money's going. Yeah. What if I if I told you know listeners right now, Charity Water's biggest need is a three thousand dollar broken copy machine, and I need a new copier. People would raise three thousand dollars to help us meet the need and get the copier that we need to you know to print whatever. I don't know. Right. Don't really print stuff, but you know that even even kind of a gross overhead need yeah. would be met because it's specific. And I think that's sometimes the problem with you know with some of the churches is there is an opacity. Um, that the donors, you know, are uncomfortable with or, or may not be used to because their nonprofits are a lot more transparent. Interesting. Okay. A couple things I've heard you say before. Um, avoid false humility. Generous people want to be giving to peers. Mm-hmm. I think this is the thing that pastors really struggle with. We sit down for lunch with somebody that's making, you know, 10 times our salary and we just assume I'm not worthy. Or I'm not worthy. Yeah. yeah. So uh, tell me about that idea. Yeah, I mean, look, I've, I've gotten to spend time with Bill Gates and Bono and, you know, Johnny Ive from Apple and, you know, some of these amazing things, uh, some of these amazing kind of leaders that I've uh, emulated. But, you know, I'm going into these meetings and I'm just like, hey, I'm Scott and here's what I've been doing. And here's the, you know, you're not going in kind of groveling or subservient, mm-hmm. you're really going and saying, hey, it's really cool what, what you've built and what you've done. You know, hey, I've given 15 million people clean water and it's a fraction of what I realized and I'd really love your help so that I can add a zero and turn that into 150 million people. So it's, I think, I think um, fundraising is, it's three things. Um, it's having a compelling vision that you can clearly articulate. You know, I mean, some, I mean, you go on some nonprofit websites and you literally have no idea what they do. I mean, something to do with like poverty, you know, or poverty alleviation. I mean, so that's, you know, being able to say we're on a mission to bring every single person in the world clean and safe drinking water. Um, you know, here's the how, um, but the, the why is we believe everybody on earth should have the most basic need for life met in clean water. So that's number one, is this compelling, clear vision that you can articulate time and time again. Number two is momentum. Nobody wants to save the day. Dude, nobody wants to help you make payroll that you're about to miss. Nobody wants to help save Sally's salary in accounting because he had a bad year. Right? People don't buy stocks that are tanking. Right? You don't invest in things that are shrinking or dying. So momentum is really important. And... You know, that's not creating a false narrative, but that's talking about the things that are working. Um, So-and-so just joined. Uh, You know, whatever those wins are that your organization is is experiencing, because you are experiencing wins, kind of highlighting that, right? The train has left the station. I'm inviting you to jump on, but we're going there with or without you. We'd love for you to come because you can help us get there a lot faster. But... In a way, you know, we're not saying, you know, the train is about to run out of, you know, track unless you come and save the day. People don't like that. That's not how they invest. That's not how they give. And then the third thing I think is generosity. Um, If you can be generous 
uh, if you're a church, you as a leader or as a family can be generous. And that, and that can take a lot of different forms. But they want to, the, the same thing you're asking them to do, they want to see you also doing. You know, I, I used to talk about this kind of eating your own dog food. You know, in, in my case, I wound up getting a, a book advance that was like orders of magnitude, you know, beyond what I ever thought. And I gave 100% of the advance and all the profits to Charity Water. And my family has now given over a million dollars to Charity Water. You know, it's taken us a long time to get there. But, you know, I'm not asking anybody to do what I'm also not willing to do. And I will use that every once in a while with a donor. You know, we were living in a two-bedroom apartment. We drive a Kia Sorento. But I've given seven figures over time to Charity Water. Um, and I believe it. And if I had more to give, you know, I would. So I think that, you know, they, in, in, in whatever form that takes, and then it's being generous with your time. And I'm often asking a major donor, you know, is there another cause you deeply care about that could use our expertise or, or somebody could use my help or could I mentor? People will take me up on that. I mean, I've had people give $12 million and say, but my cancer charity over here, they can't market where the dime, their website sucks. Like, will you please help them? And, and that's kind of part of the value exchange. And I can be also generous with my time and help something else that they deeply care about. So yeah, I would say vision, momentum, and, and generosity. Mm. That's gold. That is just gold. I, I just uh, thinking about a lot of church leaders out there trying to get that ball rolling. And I think what's killed a lot of us is social media because you can have a great Sunday and you baptize 30 people and you hear incredible life change stories and you go home and you get on Instagram and suddenly you realize, oh, yeah, but Stephen Furtick baptized 3,000. So uh, my life's worthless. Um, everybody's winning somewhere. So who's, accentuate who's Stephen <laughs> Oh, that's, that's a good one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? That, we laugh about that, but people in our church, they don't care. They don't know. So uh, tell them the wins that you do have, because that's the thing that people want to be a part of. Yeah. Scott, this has been, yeah. this has been uh, pardon the, the pun, water to a thirsty soul. So thank you. Uh, I, I just love what you're doing, and we'd love to be a part of it uh, here on the podcast. And uh, love the leadership wisdom we got from you today. I'd love to have you back to tell us more that you're learning from the front lines. Let's, uh, let's do it again at some point. Man, this is great. I feel like we just scratched the surface. So excited for your new life in Franklin, Tennessee. We've got some uh, parishioners headed out that way. We'll get you connected. So awesome. thank you so much, Scott. Thanks for having me. Well, I just love that conversation because I think a lot of us are trying to figure out how do we make a maximum impact. And boy, this, this was really good. Make sure you share that with a friend. You probably got somebody in your life that would really benefit from the words that he said and be encouraged by that. So pass that along to somebody. Make sure that you rate the show or give us a review that will keep uh, the conversation going. And uh, that would be really, really helpful. Hey, next week, oh, this is going to be fun. Uh, I had a conversation with a guy that took over for a legend of a pastor uh, down in Orange County at Mariner's Church. Kenton B. Shore had been there for over 20 some years and had done an incredible job, 20,000 people, and he retired. So what do you do? Well, you turn it over to a guy like Eric Geiger, and he's gonna be here to help us make simple how to follow a legend. All of us will have to do that at some point in our life and great insight from him. So make sure you tune in next week. Thanks so much for listening, and as always, keep it simple. 
Hey, I want to invite you to leave us a review. I appreciate what Pastor M. Lee uh, said. He said, stumbled on this blog a few years ago, and I found it to be consistently helpful and insightful. Thank you, Rusty, for your faithfulness to God and His people. You're an inspiration to us all. I got a feeling I know who that is. Mark Lee, thank you so much. You're an inspiration to us all as well. Appreciate your comments on the blog. Thank you. Take a moment and subscribe to the podcast so you'll get it delivered every week. And subscribe to the Rusty George YouTube channel for more devotionals, messages, and fun videos. Thank you for listening to Leading Simple. Let's just...